Welcome to Meet Your New New York City Council. I'm Jim Carney, Professor of Journalism and Media Studies at Lehman College. This is a series of interviews designed to introduce the people of the Bronx to their returning and incoming New York City Council members. This series is produced by the Journalism and Media Studies Department at Lehman College, City University of New York, in conjunction with City Limits. It includes a series of interviews done by journalism students with the council members themselves. I'm Natalie Cisneros and with my co-host Julia Gionta, we are speaking with New York City Council Representative Eric Danowitz. Council member Eric Danowitz is a returning member of the Bronx delegation. He represents the communities of Bedford Park, Kingsbridge, Riverdale, Norwood, Van Cortland Village, Wakefield, and Woodlawn. I want to ask you to start off, what have you done or been able to accomplish since April when you took office before the election? Yeah, so so thank you. As um, you know, my, my situation, my position is actually very interesting. I won a special election in March. I was sworn in in April. It took a very long time to count those votes. It was one of the first times our city used ranked choice voting. And way back then in March, they counted by hand. They did the counting by hand. Now, a few months later in the, in the June primary, they did it by computer, which is very normal. Um, so it took a month. But as soon as I was sworn in, uh, I hit the ground running. So there was a lot of legislation that I was able to sponsor. But interestingly, what most people came up to me and thanked me for were things like new garbage cans. So we were having problems with uh, garbage on the streets and garbage cans overflowing. And so I worked with DSNY, the Department of Sanitation, to get brand new garbage cans on in certain business corridors. And on election day in November, I got more... Um, more thank yous for those garbage cans than anything else. Um, we've, we were able to bring composting to the district. So everyone was excited when composting, when it was announced that composting was coming back, uh, but it hit us like a ton of bricks when they said, but only for Brooklyn, two community districts in Brooklyn. So we held uh, education events. We coordinated with different community groups with a community board to make sure people knew about composting, had them sign up for composting. Uh, we were in constant contact with the Department of Sanitation, uh, you know, about the way they were counting and about getting more people signed up. Long story short, we got we were able to bring composting to our district, which was a huge win locally uh, for the community. And I think though that that even during the pandemic, and that well, we're still in the pandemic, but even during the height of the pandemic, um, it was so interesting to me that with all of the pain and all of the loss and the suffering that people were facing and all of the fear, people were and are still very concerned about their quality of life. It's very important, our, our daily living. So I, I know we're kind of smirking at garbage cans and we're smirking at the, uh, the composting, but that's a big deal for people. Um, I've been able to work with the Department of Transportation to quickly put in uh, speed bumps and other life-saving measures on in dangerous corners and intersections and streets in our district, that's still a constant struggle to get DOT to uh, to move quickly. Um, and I'm also very proud of the work I've done on the committees, right? Having those committee meetings and just holding our city agencies accountable. And the, the questions that I raise with them, the issues that I bring up are all born out of the relationships I have with community members and the interactions I have with them and their their relationship with, with my office. And in my short time in office, I've developed very good relationships with community members and community organizations. And I think most people in district who maybe never 
communicated with their local elected official before now know that they can contact me and I will be responsive to them near to their needs, whether it's something big like city policy on education or retirement benefits or something that may seem small like a garbage can or garbage pickup, but is actually very important to their daily living. I also heard that you were doing helping schools and teachers. So I have a question about that. So in addressing the needs of children in our schools, you recognize emotional issues, home life, and mental health needs. In what ways specifically are you able to ensure that each child receives the individual support they need? So before, I I think most people by now who know me or do a quick Google search of me know that before I was a council member, I was a special education teacher in our school for almost 14 years. And a lot of what I bring to the table and a lot of what I bring to the council are not just my experiences as a teacher, but the experiences of my students living in New York City, mostly living in the Bronx. I think our education system is structured on top of bad incentives right now. The incentives right now are mostly things like test scores and credit accrual. And so what does that mean functionally? It means that if a child is facing a crisis in the classroom, or facing a crisis at home, schools right now are not incentivized to give that child the support that they need, even though that is what's important for the child. They're incentivized to improve that child's test scores. It means that if a principal has to make a decision between after-school programs for whether it's mental health uh, needs, whether it's social-emotional club, anything like that, if they have to make a choice between those after-school activities And test prep, they are incentivized right now for the test prep. They are judged on that test prep. They're not judged on the life, the the type of life our children lead inside and outside the school. The, The schools and teachers and children are not judged on what they achieve after school, on what they achieve in college, or once they graduate high school, 10 years down the line. None of those things are judged in our schools. And so I think fundamentally, our assessment structure is broken. Um, I am uh, you know, a big fan of gardens. And so you asked in your previous question, one of the things I was able to achieve in my short time in the council. And I'll get to that in a minute, but I just wanna talk about my time teaching environmental science. Now, most teachers, most people think of a classroom, rows of desks, here's a te- textbook, here's what we need to learn, here's the mini lesson, do some work, right? Um, I was fortunate enough to teach self-contained classes. And for those who don't know, a self-contained class is a smaller class of children with disabilities who maybe have more needs um, than can be addressed in a mainstream general education class. And I will add, and as as an aside, we need more self-contained classes in our high schools. Um, But I was able to bring my students to our school garden, which we were fortunate enough to have. And instead of giving them a handout on composting, we made compost piles. We lifted up the branches on the top level and saw worms and bugs eating away at the branches. Instead of teaching them about seed germination from a a YouTube video, they planted seeds in the ground. They built beds for the flowers and the herbs. Instead of showing them a picture of a greenhouse, we went inside a greenhouse and we planted tomatoes in there uh, and we planted them in the ground. And, you know, the difference is experiencing that learning is so much more impactful than just showing them the learning. But there are other benefits. We don't measure these benefits, but they exist. 
for students who struggle maybe to sit in the classroom, which is, you know, 100% of people struggle to sit in a chair for 45 minutes, being up and out and working with your body and your hands is such an important um, way to teach. But my students were building things. They were putting things in the ground. And once they saw that food grow, they would eat that food. And this is so important for children in the Bronx. We know have poor health outcomes. I had students who were coming into school eating, you know, Lay's potato chips and Doritos and Pepsi for breakfast. But once they grew that tomato, once they grew, uh, you know, those beans, and they would see literally the fruits of their labor and eat that, sometimes their diet changed. Again, we as a school system don't measure that, but our health system does. And there's, there's, no relationship there. Our school system and, and, and health system don't have that relationship to see the value in that outdoor education. So socially, emotionally, it's impactful to the lives uh, and that the health benefits to our students and impactful. Oh, and oh yeah, by the way, they're learning the important academics that we would learn in the classroom anyway. Now, I would say one other thing I was able to do since I got into office, just to address that first question, is that when I was first sworn in, I was presented with an issue where a local school wanted to kick out a local nonprofit from the garden and get rid of the garden, right? Which I know from the personal experiences I just shared with you would be and could be devastating to the education and the lives of our children. So I immediately brought everyone together, the DOE, the principals, teachers, the nonprofits, students, brought them together, tried to come to a common understanding. You know, we had to fight a little bit, hold press conferences and and write letters and do some public things. But long story short, we saved the garden and we saved the nonprofit's relationship there. That was a big win, not not just for for the community, but for the kids in that school. And again, looking 10 years down the line, those kids are gonna take those lessons with them and those health benefits with them for a long time. I mentioned just when talking about the garden, because there's so much in a garden, the relationship between you know our health system and the school. There's also what I view as a poor relationship between the Department of Homeless Services and our schools. At our last education committee meeting, I said, okay, so how many social workers do you have dedicated to our children in homeless shelters? And they said 324. Uh, that is a bad ratio. Going by the lowest number that DHS reported in June, I think there were, they said 12,000 kids in the system. So that's about a, a ratio of 40 kids to one kid facing homelessness. And that is a bad ratio to begin with, but those social workers and related to, and providers are shared between the shelters and inside of school. This is what uh, they shared with me. And so we need to ensure that those students, our students who are so much more vulnerable and have much more needs are getting what they need. Otherwise we are just creating a, a cycle where those children's children are gonna still be high needs. We need to invest a lot of time and energy and communication and yeah, money in the children who need the most. most. And that includes our homeless children and our children uh, with special needs who, again, right now are not getting what they need and what they deserve. What do you want parents' roles to be concerning their children's education? I want parents uh, to be involved, obviously. And the best student, the, the, the students who I think did best in school. And I don't mean had the best grades, um, although that's always good. And the students who were engaged and, you know, had the best social, emotional intelligence and showed improvements day after day, week after week, 
were the students whose parents were involved. And we as a city have to help facilitate that. You know, whether that's the DOE communicating with families. And I, and I think one of the biggest frustrations that so many families faced during this pandemic was not that the, the, the rules or the regulations changed, because I think all of us were trying, were very, um, you know, understanding of the needs and very flexible. It's that so many of these changes were happening last minute. And we're still seeing some of those problems today. Um, with, with a lot of the, the regulations and rules, whether it's for schools uh, or even for small businesses and families. Um, it's very hard to be a parent to begin with. It is very hard to navigate um, a bureaucratic system to begin with. Then thrown on top of it, what I view as bad and last minute communication, it becomes almost impossible. I think we as a city need especially to do a much better job for our families with children with special needs and families who want or need early intervention services. Navigating the early intervention system is, is, could be in and of itself a full-time job. And our families who maybe don't speak English or don't know how to navigate that system because it is such a complicated system or are working, you know, are, are working parents and working for, for many hours of the day it is very hard for those parents, for our neighbors, to navigate that system. And we as a city need to help facilitate um, to facilitate that for our children. And this is, uh, again, about our children, our youngest children, ages zero to three. A lot of the needs and a lot of the needs that I saw when I was teaching high schoolers, I believe had they received early intervention services or even had their needs addressed much earlier on, could have done a lot more for themselves and their families in high school. Uh, and this isn't just something I believe out of nowhere. I had high schoolers who came into my classroom not knowing how to read. They were on an elementary school reading level. And it's, it's devastating. But I went to my principal and thank goodness I had a principal who you know, wasn't as concerned with her quantifiable data, with her test scores. I said, can I teach these kids how to read? I said, let me get a group of five kids I'll teach him how to read. I was, I was maybe a little more confident than I should have been as a 21-year-old kid uh, starting teaching. Um, I said, let me teach these kids to read. And she said, all right. And, you know, when you, when you do classes like that, I did a Wilson reading program. The students don't get credit for it. The school doesn't get credit for it. I'm not judging it. But this is what was important to the kids. And I was so grateful that my principal allowed me to do that. And guess what? Given that direct instruction... And given that individualized support, they, they grew multiple reading levels. And it wasn't just that they started to be able to decode the words on the page. Once they were able to, able to do that, they started understanding more, of course, of what they were reading. They weren't spending all their brain power trying to decode. And socially, emotionally, they're, they're, like their mental health improved because they were able to keep up more with their, with their peers in that mainstream setting. They were able to volunteer to read in front of the class and they felt good about themselves, which is such an important component of them continuing their education. It's hard for the three of us to imagine what it's like to sit in an entire school day all day and miss most of what's going on or be dejected and feel like a failure the entire day because you don't know how to read. So that I was able to help our kids and give them the individualized support 
with a direct reading instruction was so important to their lives. But it also shows you that had they gotten that individualized support earlier on, they could have learned to read earlier on. So I think, again, our city engaging with the parents, telling them their rights and guiding them through these Byzantine processes and structures of our city, and of course, simplifying those processes. But that is such an important component because again, it's about our children. How can you maintain a limit on kids per classroom while ensuring that all kids will have fair and equal accessibility to classes of smaller sizes? I, lo- I love that word accessibility. You know, we talk about something, uh, talk about universal design for learning. And, you know, the example that w- is always given to us in these professional developments is, you know, it's a snowy day and, um, and, and the, the, the person shoveling, there's a ramp and, and a stair- stairway. And the person shoveling decides to shovel the stairway first. And the kid in the wheelchair is like, why don't you just shovel the ramp? Everyone can use the ramp. And it's always a good, good you know, analogy for our education system. Let's make sure our lessons and our, and our units and curriculum and our education system is something that everyone can access. So I've taught in classes with 36 kids. I've taught in classes with 20 kids. And bar none, no matter what the kids need, the smaller classes uh, are better for everyone. Obviously, we need more teachers. Obviously, uh, we need um, more schools and bigger schools and schools, importantly, that address the diverse needs of our learners. Um, but, I, but I do want to say something that's somehow become political and, um, and, and dangerous to talk about, which is things like honors classes, honors programs, and special education classes and special education programs. There's this weird view in our education system that if you just put everyone in the same class and differentiate the learning, and I don't know if this is audio only or video, but I put big quotation marks around differentiate the learning. It's, it's sort of this buzzword that's used. Then everyone will magically be better at their learning. But as I mentioned before, I had students in high school classes who couldn't read at grade level, they couldn't, they could, they couldn't read at middle school level. They were, they were five, six, seven, eight grade levels behind reading. We, they tried being in the same class as other children for years and it didn't work. What worked was separating them out and saying, Hey, you have a need and we're going to provide that need for you. I taught them to read and that benefited them. There's a political push to mainstream all self-contained kids into general education classes, ICT classes, where there's two teachers in the class, regardless of their need. There is no other industry where you say, oh, you're doing a good job, so I'm gonna stop helping you. You know, imagine if I'm taking, I'm taking a, you know, a, medicine, a heart medication or something, right? Would a doctor ever say for you, hey, the heart medication's working great, let's stop giving it to you because you're fine. You would never say that. It's true also for honors classes. There's a push to get rid of our honors classes. And there's a reality that there are students who are performing beyond grade level. And that's okay. And and I believe in what I've seen is, is it's okay to have them in classes or in groups with other children uh, who can challenge their thinking. You know, other groups of kids, of our kids, need direct instruction from teachers. And just pretending that if we put all the kids in the class together, everyone will magically lift each other up. It's just not the case. And I've seen it directly in the classroom. I've seen in the worst case, again, students 
with really high needs who really should be in self-contained classes in the same classes as a large group of students who really should be in AP classes. And what happens is as a class as a whole, the class may get slowed down enough that those, you know, our kids who really need those AP classes aren't getting what they need, but it's going fast enough that the children who really need that more direct instruction are, are just feeling dejected and down and, and saying, and they say to themselves, why am I in this class? I, I need more help. It's embarrassing that everyone else is understanding what's going on and I still don't get it. And that is, it's awful academically. It's awful for our kids' social emotional health. And we do have uh, a mayor who does recognize the importance of social emotional health. We do have a department of education who is talking more and more about social emotional health. We need to make sure our policies reflect what's best for our children. We continued our conversation talking about housing. Eric Danowitz talked about how he plans to help the families living in the New York City Housing Authority and how it's important to have new housing with affordable units and that individuals living here deserve dignity with nice living conditions. Now, switching gears a little bit to housing. So how do you plan to help the families living in the New York City Housing Authority? And how will you get them the resources they need? You know, I say if we have a, uh, the public advocate's office says, I think it's the hundred worst landlords list. And I think uh, New York City Housing Authority maybe should be on that list. And then, you, you know, you, you, you walk inside the buildings where our neighbors are living and it's, it's terrible. A few years ago, we had the, we still have you know, the lead paint crisis just over and over again. We see buildings that aren't maintained. If any of our landlords did this, we'd be having press conferences outside their building We'd be asking, you know, we'd be asking the, the city or state to take over, to do something so that that landlord couldn't be there, but NYCH is there. Um, I think one of the things that I've done as Democratic district leader for years is work to elect Democrats in the federal government. So whether it's running phone banks or canvassing efforts, one of the things we need is money. And we're looking to get billions of dollars to invest in our housing authority. And, and, it, and it's so important because these, again, are our neighbors who deserve dignity and nice living conditions. You know, personally, I, you know, I have um, nature development in my district. And sometimes, you know, there are things that I can do to make, you know, to make the community better. So I've invested, you know, time uh, and discretionary dollars in their community garden. I visited it, you know, they're having a solar panel launch this weekend, which I'm attending. And that provides I don't want to talk more about gardens. I think I've talked that nauseam about them, but how important that is for a community um, to have that space. But we also you know, need diversity in our housing models and housing structures. So I have approved um, tax rebates for affordable housing. It's important that developers develop new housing with affordable units. But look, I grew up in, a Mich in Michelama housing, and I think it was one of the, the best models. Because you have a sort of continuum of, continuum of models. Uh, in, in the Michelama co-op in which I was raised, you needed to have a little bit of money to invest in the, uh, you'd leave it in escrow. You needed to be earning above a certain amount, but you couldn't earn above a certain amount. So you had to be within a bracket. You had to sort of be middle income. And what that allowed my family to do, it allowed us to you know, pay our maintenance every month. We had stability in our monthly fees. It allowed us to save up you know, a little money. So eventually we were able to move 
to to a co-op, to I guess market rate co-op. The, the, the Mishlama co-op I lived in had a board and they represented us. And I and I think it was a great model that the state needs to uh, needs to reinvest in. But beyond that, we talk a lot about the affordable units. I think a lot of what we don't talk about enough are jobs and good paying jobs, living wage, wage jobs, jobs that give you dignity and financial security. And that's why I've uh, been so supportive of unions because unions is a path for path to the middle class. It's a path to stability and good income. And so there are some bills in the council um, that I'm you know, proud to have sponsored, whether it's uh, security workers at our, at our homeless shelters, um, being able to, to unionize and have the training that they need, or you know, in, in, in nonprofits, uh, uh, a labor, you know, having labor agreements in, in our nonprofits that are getting a certain amount of uh, city funds. And you know, sometimes it's just standing with our unions, with our workers. I myself was a UFT member. And one of the benefits that I had was my wife and I knew that in X number of years, this is going to be my salary. So we were able to, to plan, but, but you look at states and cities like New York, where we have strong unions compared to the right to work, or as I like to call them, right to work for less states, uh, where you have teachers having to work two, three jobs. How many stories have you heard about teachers making their salary, but then having to work you know, as a waiter or, or waitress or, or some, other, some other job? And sometimes they were working those jobs to afford school supplies for their own students which is bonkers. And so we, so affordable housing, having the continuum of models, but also supporting working families so that they can actually earn a lot, earn enough to live in those affordable units. Regarding your priority to ensure affordable housing to all seniors, how do you seek to protect and expand the senior citizen rent increase exemption? One of the problems that we have in the city is that older adults don't know about SCREE. Um, or they do, but it's, it's sort of a complicated process. Applicants who live in like a Michelama co-op, for example, or limited liability co-op, I have a bunch of those in my district. So again, I'll just go back to the Michelama as an example. I, you know, my family was, was required to fill an income affidavit. We had to declare how much we made to make sure we, lived, we, we earned in that bracket. Older adults who live in Michelama co-ops, limited liability co-ops, fill out the same form. But yet they still have to fill out a scree form. So HPD uh, and the Department of Finance, I think that they need to work together. So the Department of Finance can automatically get those income figures from HPD, who receives those um, uh, the, the the income affidavits from if you live in a Mitchell McCall, for example, so that those eligible for the program can automatically receive it, or at the bare minimum, get a phone call to apply. You know, Scree's not available for every type of apartment. That could be expanded. You're not available for Scree if you live in NYCHA. Uh, if your units are partially or fully paid by Section 8 vouchers and in non-rent regulated apartments, cost of living is, incre is increasing um, while, you know, people's pension checks or Social Security may be increasing because they earn more during their lifetime as they are retiring. Yet the threshold is not increasing the three the, the income threshold so that could be expanded expanded so right now it's it's fifty thousand I believe one of the problems that we've seen is if you make over fifty thousand in one year so let's say you know a partner unfortunately passes away or you decide to sell a stock and that for that one year you inherit something you make a little extra money that puts you over the top you're then not eligible for the screen 
and you're eligible once you make under 50,000 again, but, but, but that temporary increase in your income is not reflective of your income. Now, everything else we do reflects this. When you apply for Medicaid, sorry, rather doesn't reflect this. When you apply for Medicaid, they look at the last five years of your assets. When you retire, they take the final average three years of your salary, I think in most, in most cases. But SCREE doesn't look at sort of the, the long-term, your long-term income. They look, they look up oh, this year, you made about 50K, sorry, you don't get that money. Um, so I think things like that uh, can, also, can also be reformed. In advocating for rent stabilization, what specific actions do you want to see from Albany to stop the loss of rent-regulated housing? I think in the past couple of years, we've had very good progressive uh, legislation for rent, you know, for rent regulated apartments. Uh, I think there were seven bills passed uh, about two years ago that addressed some of the issues that were starting, some of the needs that were starting to be worn away in the 90s. Um, In the 90s, they started chipping away at the rights of renters and rent stabilized units. You know, then in, again, I think it was two years ago, they started passing uh, a package of bills. I'm very fortunate, my assemblyman, I, I was the author of Two of those bills, great guy, great assemblyman. Um, the two of those rent regulation uh, bills, which sought to protect homeowners, I'm sorry, rather, uh, my apologies, uh, rent stabilized units and those living in those rent stabilized units to give power to the renters uh, before landlords are finding every little loophole, an excuse to increase the rent enough to move it out of rent stabilization. Uh, but now the laws are on the side of the renters, which is how it should be. It should be on the side of tenants should be on the side of the masses. Uh, we also right now are obviously facing a housing crisis. And uh, that same great assemblyman who passed those two uh, rent regulation bills uh, is also the author of the eviction moratorium, uh, which I think is in its third passage because they had to renew it a number of times because we are still in a pandemic. So I think I think this state has done a number of has taken a number of good steps to help those living in rent stabilized units. We as a city have a job to do in helping to enforce that because a lot of um, people are skirting, uh, a lot of people, landlords are skirting the law and making it very hard for the very people who need that stabilization for the, you know, for our working families who need that stabilization, people at risk of, you know, being pushed out of the rent stabilized unit having to go to market rate apartments that, um, that they can't afford. And when you're, you know, this isn't just numbers on a spreadsheet. I've had students whose families were living in one and one bed, one and two bedroom apartments with other families. So imagine you have eight people in a one or two bedroom apartment because that's what they were able to afford. And that's the, and that's the reality. And, and you asked about earlier, you know, about our, our students, it, you know, it's not just about what we're doing in the classroom. It's what we're doing for their housing. And how our agencies and the part of education, how they're talking to all of our other agencies to make sure that our children and our families uh, are getting what they need. So those steps the state took is important. We as a city have to make sure that we are enforcing uh, the progressive legislation that they were able to pass. And as a conclusion to our conversation today, what can the residents of District 11 expect from you now going forward? They can expect from me what they've already gotten. Someone who's listening to them, hearing what they have to say, and ensuring that their needs are met here in the district 
and at City Hall. Well, Councilman Dinowitz, um, <laughs> we thank you very much for your time um, and for speaking with us today. And we wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Julia, Natalie, thank you so much for the interview. I wish you both uh, the best of luck in the future. You've been listening to Meet Your New New York City Council, a special production of the Lehman College Journalism and Media Studies Department in conjunction with the City Limits. This program was written and reported by journalism students of Lehman College. Special production assistance was provided by City Limits Online and Spanish language editor and reporter Daniel Parra. Engineering assistance was provided by the Bronx Journal engineer Yves Dussault. Special thanks to Professor Thomas O'Hanlon, Chair of the Lehman Journalism Department, and Dr. James Mann, Dean of the Lehman College School of Arts and Humanities. This program was produced and edited by me. I'm Jim Carney. For more information about the Journalism and Media Studies program, contact us at jms at lehman.cuny.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.